Good morning again. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. We miss you all very, very much. Um, but I still am very excited uh, to get to preach God's word uh, to you and praying that it would be a ministry and, and a comfort to you. And so if you would take out your Bibles, paper Bibles, preferably, and begin turning back to the book of Hebrews uh, to the next chapter. This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Before We were rudely interrupted by coronavirus and quarantine. We were in the middle of a short topical series about the church, about life in the church, specifically what it means to be the church and how we are to conduct ourselves as the church. Ironically, the text that I had chosen to preach on six weeks ago was Hebrews 1025, which tells us not to be neglecting to meet together. On that day, of course, when many were beginning to neglect to meet together. So I I called an audible on the last minute that day and decided that we were going to spend a couple of weeks in the Psalms to help us all process what was going on around us. But I do want to try and go back and wrap up that little series. Maybe in a time when we are unable to gather, when we are all of us hopefully feeling the loss of being able to be together, maybe this is an especially good time to highlight the importance of church membership, of of belonging to one another, of having access. And so while I want to get to verses 24 and 25 and look specifically at what Christians are called to do and how I believe those commands and those verses require church membership, I'm going to wait on that until next week And I want us to focus this morning on verses 19 through 23. And I want us to look at first at the foundation and the motivation for the commands that we're going to look at then next week. So first, this morning, we're going to meditate on the wonderful privileges of the gospel that then compel us to do what we're going to look at next week. And so we were talking about church membership. Let's review a little bit to remind ourselves where we were six weeks ago. And we've been attempting to talk about this in terms of love. I'm attempting to make the case that church membership is an expression of Christian love. We started with John 13 verse 34 where Jesus gives this command. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Christ commands love, even and especially in times like these. Circumstances do not change commands. Love is the law. This is the foundational truth of the Christian life. Christians are characterized by love because God is characterized by love. Christians love each other. If you do not love other Christians, you simply are not a Christian. But Christians don't just love one another vaguely or in word only or like the world does. No, Jesus gives us a specific content and direction to that love. Christians love as Christ has loved us. Christians are to love other Christians like Christ loves them. And so we saw that Christ loves his people through covenant. Luke chapter 22, the the night that Jesus was betrayed, he institutes the Lord's Supper, the cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right there, Christ is covenanting 
with his people. And in covenanting with his people, what he is doing is he is committing to his people. I am yours and you are mine. He binds himself to his people. Christ covenants, Christ commits. Therefore, my basic argument is that if we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, then we too must covenant with one another, and in so doing, we commit to one another. That's what church membership is. It is a binding relationship of both law and love when Christian and church are bound together for the mutual edification of each. I am yours, and you are mine. That's what we're declaring when we vote new people into church membership. That's what I cannot wait to do soon. Mike and I have been discussing, do we need to do this virtually? If this is going to extend for an intended period of time, or can we praise God? Or can we pray that we'll be back together soon so that we can add these new people waiting to join us? Right? Membership declares people to be part of the body. Part of the family. We are bound to each other. We are committing to love and care for each other. So basic argument, Christ commits to his people through covenant. Therefore, Christians commit to other Christians through covenant. And that's what church membership is. And it is all about love. Love one another. And true love, I hope you know, requires commitment. Therefore, church membership is implied in Christ's command to love. And then after that, Mike, Pastor Mike brilliantly introduced the topic of church discipline by saying church discipline is a profound display of Christian love. So church membership is important, which means that church discipline is important. And both of them are all about love. We love one another by uniting together and committing to one another. And we love one another enough that we don't let one another run off into the sin that separates from the God that we love. It's a bit strange that church discipline is so unpopular in churches today. It's pretty simple. Uh, Discipline is good because sin is bad. Sin is that which is opposed to God. It is that which does not conform to his perfect and good and beautiful will. And since sin separates and the wages of sin is death, if we love one another, we will seek to protect from one another from the destructive and potentially damaging and damning consequences of unrepentant sin. We're all of us. I understand. We're we're concerned about the physical virus spreading around right now. Prayerfully, we hope slowing down, um, but still out there. But how many of us are actually concerned with the far more deadly spiritual virus that has always been spreading around and is always there from the very beginning? Yes, physical death is bad, but spiritual death is far worse. Discipline is good because sin is bad. Discipline is an expression of our love for one another. I discipline my daughters because I love my daughters. Parents, you may think you are loving your children by not disciplining them. Scripture says the opposite. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. Love disciplines because love seeks the good of the loved and sin is never the good of the loved. All right, so church discipline is one of the main responsibilities of church membership. And that's where we left things off um, before everything exploded. That's your very brief and insufficient review. The command to love necessarily requires church membership. Okay, well then now what? Right? Now what does that 
look like. We want to put some meat on those bones. And we want to flesh that command out a little bit more. We want to flesh out what it looks like uh, to love one another in the context of church membership practically. And that's what we're going to do next week. Because I've been so captured first by these foundational verses of 19 through 23. And I'm convinced that we will not and we cannot do 24 and 25 until we appreciate 19 through 23. So today all I want to do is direct your attention to the context and motivation for these responsibilities. Ultimately, I want to argue that in light of verses 19 through 21, you are then required and responsible and better yet, privileged to consider others, to consider how you can seek to do intentional spiritual good to others. That's what discipleship is. It's intentionally seeking to do spiritual good to another. And that is what you are responsible to do as a member of this church, to love one another by seeking the spiritual good of those others. What a timely world this could be. Timely word. In this period of potential panic, when our first concern naturally tends to be our own self, our own wealth, our own health, let's be reminded by God's word these next two weeks that especially in times like these, we are called to love one another. But we will not and we cannot do that without the gospel, without the good news of Christ's love first. That's what I want to try to encourage you with today. Let's set our eyes on the big picture truths to put in proper perspective everything that is swirling around us right now. So if you'll look down at the text there, I've told you 19 through 21 is the foundation. Then if you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, you'll see there three lettuces. That's, that's three heads of, of lettuce. Now, I'll give you a moment to compose yourselves at home and to stop laughing. Three lettuces. That's what we're driving at. We're going to look at these three commands. But first, we're going to look at the foundation verses of 19 through 21. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to walk through three points. Uh, the first point will result in the two points. Um, again, don't panic. The vast majority of the sermon will be given to the first point, and then we're going to briefly apply it with the second and third points at the end. Here's the gospel. Christ provides full and free access to God. And because of that application, because of that access, let us Because of what Christ has done, we're going to see three main things. We're going to see that Christians draw near to God. We're going to see that Christians hold fast to God. And then next week, we're going to get an entire week to focus on the third command, that Christians encourage and gather with the people of God. So the foundation and then the application. But let me read the text for you first, and then we'll begin to walk through it. My goal is simply to encourage you with the good news of God's word found in these verses. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and we'll read the verse 25, but we're going to focus on 19 through 23. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest 
over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. If you would, uh, bow with me, and let's begin first with, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is not bound, that your word cannot be isolated or quarantined. Father, we thank you that your word can work even at a distance. We thank you that it is living and active and that it is a great comfort uh, to your people. So, Father, I ask um, this morning in these next few minutes um, that I would be a comfort to your people. And I pray that I would be a comfort to your people to to the degree that I faithfully and truthfully um, proclaim your word. As I stick to the text and the truths um, contained in this um, wonderful passage, I pray that you would use them, Lord, to encourage and edify your saints who are stuck at home, uh, who are maybe frustrated, uh, who are maybe discouraged. Um, Father, help them to focus and be attentive to your word. Father, I ask for your spirit to minister your word to our hearts and our minds. Father, show us the wonderful gift that we have of access into your very presence um, through the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Father, help now the preaching of your word and help the hearing of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting with the foundation, with with the motivation. I can can tell you that, that we can love one another all day, and I will, But until you see that love rooted in Christ's indescribable love for you, you'll never do it. Um, So we need to get to the practical eventually. Uh, We do want some intentional steps on how to better love one another as fellow members of this church. But we'll forget all of those things and nothing will change until our hearts are absolutely captured with the love of God poured out on us in Christ Jesus. And so let's start off by talking about Access. That's something that all of us want right now, isn't it? We have all been barred access to various things that we love and long for. I hope that one of those things for you is is this. It's this place. It's, It's being together as a people in this place. We do not currently have access to that. I hope that we will soon. But right now, we're talking about the most important access. Access to the most important person. How do you get that. And then we're going to look at how you apply that access or how you appropriate that access. What do we do in light of the access that we have? But first, how do we get access to God himself? Look at verse 19. We need some context here. We're we're jumping right into the middle of the argument of this book. And this is not just some random spot in the book. Uh, This is the very pivot point of the book of Hebrews. That therefore, that begins verse 19, is the signal that the focus of the book has shifted. Up to this point, the book has been largely explanation. After this point, it is largely exhortation. 
Right? And we are, most of us, familiar with this basic pattern in many of the New Testament letters. We often talk about it in terms of the indicative versus the imperative. Remember that these are verb moods. You can Google it and pull it up right now if you would like. Mood tells us the manner in which the verb is expressed and thus how it is to be understood. Indicative, uh, it's a statement of fact. Matthew loves Melissa. Fact. It is a statement of what is true. Imperative. Statement of command. Melissa, kiss Matthew. Right? A statement of what she is to do. We have not been practicing social distancing, which is probably a problem because everyone thinks she has the virus. Oh well. But we've talked many times about how the pattern of the gospel, the grammar of the gospel, is always indicative, then imperative. What God has done. Then and only then, what you are to do in response. Indicative, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's indicative. That's fact. That's what is true. That's what God has done. Ephesians 2, 11, Therefore, remember. That's imperative. In light of all that, what God has done, therefore you remember this thing. Do this thing. That's the pattern of the gospel and the pattern of many of Paul's letters. Romans 1 through 11, indicative. indicative. Chapters 12 through 16, imperative. I appeal to you, therefore, I present your bodies. In light of those 11 wonderful chapters explaining the grace of God, Therefore, five chapters of how you should obediently live in response. Ephesians 1 through 3, indicative. 4 through 6, imperative. And Hebrews 1 through 10, indicative. Second half of chapter 10 through chapter 13, imperative. So to understand the therefore, you have to understand what has come before. What is Hebrews about? Hebrews is ultimately about the supreme greatness of of Jesus Christ. And that is the truth that you need right now if you are frustrated or fearful. Hebrews, as the title of the book indicates, is a letter written to a generally Jewish congregation that seems to have been facing hard times, uh, persecution, suffering, and it seems that some of them have been tempted to turn away from the faith and to put their trust in something else. In times of uncertainty, you may be tempted to turn away from God and to put your trust in something else. The government, your own self-quarantine, your abundant supply of, of whatever it is that you've stocked up, your superior scientific understanding of epidemiology, or whatever it is. But for them, their specific temptation was to turn and return to Moses and the Old Testament rituals and regulations. So to guard them from that and to turn them back, Hebrews proclaims clearly that Christ is better. This book is about Christ's superiority over all things, particularly his superiority over all things Old Covenant. We see that Jesus is better than angels, Moses, priests, the high priest. He's the true and better sacrifice for sin. He mediates a better covenant and acted on better promises. Jesus is so far superior to those things that it would be foolishness 
to even consider going back to them. It would be foolishness to prefer the shadow to the substance. And so for us, it would be foolishness to look to anything in this time other than Christ, to put our trust and our hope in anything else. And so the whole big first part of the letter, all about the superiority of Jesus, concludes with the first part of chapter 10 and is summarized in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, period. It's finished. There's nothing else. Jesus has done it. He has finished it. Therefore, verses 19 through 26. And while that therefore is the pivot point of the letter, this is really interesting what the author's doing. It's masterfully constructed. Uh, You could also argue that these verses summarize the whole letter while transitioning from part one to part two. If our author could only have written one paragraph to the Hebrews, it would have probably been verses 19 through 26. This is like the center that both transitions and summarizes. First part, verse 19, blood of Jesus, the way opened through his flesh, his death, our great high priest. That's all of the first 10 chapters in a couple of verses. Therefore, draw near, hold fast, and do it together. Consider one another. That's the whole second part of Hebrews. Right, so these verses contain all of Hebrews in miniature. And that's all to lay the critical foundation of the indicative that we will need to motivate the coming imperative. Because of all that Christ has done for us, verse 19, we now have confidence. Do you have confidence right now? What are you finding confidence in? This is confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That may sound a little strange to our ears. That may not even sound like that big of a deal. But that's huge. And it's bigger than we think. And I want to pause and draw your attention to this confidence to enter. We may not find this that exciting. We should find this that exciting. The Hebrews to whom this is being written to at that time would have found this that exciting. And I think part of our problem stems from the fact that we tend to equate temple and tabernacle with church building. Without really thinking about it, we tend to assume that their temple was like our church building. Don't do that. They are not the same in any way. The point of the temple and the tabernacle was the presence of God. The temple was where God was. But guess what? You don't get to go into the temple. Ever. You would have never entered the doors of the temple. You would have never seen the inside of the temple. You didn't get to go into the place where God was present. And so while the temple did represent the presence of God, it also very graphically represented the separation from God. Us regular folk don't get to go into the temple. We don't have access. That's why the priests were so important. The priests have access. That's why the Hebrews, when they're suffering, are tempted to go back to the priests because they're like, wait, those are the guys that have the access to God. We don't have that access. Maybe we need these priests again. It was only the priests that got to enter into the temple. They were the only ones who got to enter into the special place of the presence of God. They were the mediators between God and man. But even the priests 
experienced a degree of separation. Because while they could enter into the opening, the first part of the temple, they could not enter into the heart of the temple. They could not go behind the veil or the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the place where God was present. Only the high priest got to enter the Holy of Holies, and only once a year. I've mentioned before, it's a wonderful children's book, uh, The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. Parents, Google it and get it for your children. There's a refrain running throughout the whole book. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. We didn't have access. And that's in part what the temple is symbolizing. We don't get to enter into the holy places. You've probably heard the story before of how they used to tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he was struck down dead upon entering the presence of God, they could drag out his corpse, right? You've heard that story? It preaches well, well but it's not true, right? It's, it's, it's not in the Bible. Uh, it's not in any of the older Jewish literature. The story first shows up in some 13th century obscure Jewish mystical text. There's no validity to it. Um, but it's rooted in the idea of the danger of holiness, sinfulness. Consider Uriah, who was struck down dead upon touching the ark. Uh, Consider the glory cloud that drove the people from the temple and the tabernacle. Sinful man doesn't get to be with holy God. They never got to enter into the holy places. They did not have access. But now, here, All of a sudden, in this important transitioning verse, we are told access into those holy places. And not only that, but to do this with with confidence, we can, as it says in chapter 4, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Or as the King James puts it, we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. Boldness and confidence in the presence of God and in our access to Him. What? They would have been stunned by this. It's it's amazing, or at least it should be amazing. Are you at all amazed by this concept? I generally don't have much boldness and confidence in the presence of my superiors. I've mentioned before that I don't get nervous preaching anymore. But I do get nervous when I have to preach for Ed Moore because I look up to Ed. I think he's a great preacher. Uh, as a man that I look to as a mentor, I, I care about what he thinks. So I get a little nervous. And when his head, he does this sometimes, when his neck starts to turn like this, I'm like, oh no, I've said something wrong. Uh, right? so, so preaching in Ed's presence, well, I don't have tons of boldness or confidence. Imagine then if I somehow had the opportunity to preach in front of Martin Lloyd-Jones Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, and John Calvin, each arguably the greatest preacher of each of the last five centuries. I skipped the 17th century because I couldn't decide who would be the greatest preacher of that century. Maybe Baxter or Bunyan. Maybe somebody helped me out with that. I wasn't sure. But imagine if I was tasked with preaching before those men, all arguably in the top ten of the greatest preachers who have ever lived. Now, again, I know my confidence is in Christ. Okay, okay, I I know all that. I'm talking right now about my confidence in myself and in my ability in comparison to those greats. Not a lot of boldness and confidence for Matthew Shores in the presence of such persons. The contrast between my weakness and their power, between my littleness and their bigness, that gulf, that gap 
makes boldness and confidence impossible for me in their presence. But catch this then. Verse 19. We're talking about the greatest person. We are talking about God himself. And we are being told here that we, little old we, small, insignificant we. And not only that, but, but sinful, unholy we. We can have boldness and confidence in our approach and access to him in all his bigness and significance and transcendence and holiness and righteousness and all the attributes we could just list on and on and on. I have access to that, to him, to his presence. Have you ever been stunned by that? If not, then maybe you don't really understand what is being said here. Maybe you don't appreciate the presence of God. Maybe you don't appreciate how unqualified you are to be in that presence. And thus how eternally huge it is that such a thing is possible. Boldness to have access to enter in. How could such a thing be possible? The end of verse 19 tells us. Look at the end of verse 19. By the blood of Jesus. And blood, we know, equals death. So what it's saying is there was by the death of Jesus. The wages of sin is death. It is what we earn, what we deserve with our sin. And because God is perfectly holy, that sin, which is our willing rejection of him, then separates us from him and thus bars us from access to him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. And again, we all get this basic principle. Right? We all understand that there is some sort of basic standard of presentability to be in the presence of persons. Right? Some of you won't turn on your Zoom video because of this. Right? You haven't done your makeup or you haven't done your hair. Or you haven't put pants on. Right? So, so you don't want to be seen in the presence of people in such a state. Now, again, some of that's silly, but it conveys the basic idea that we get that to some degree it matters how we present ourselves to others. There is some sort of standard or expectation when it comes to being in the presence of other persons. But here we're not talking about physical appearance or presentability, but spiritual. And here the person is not just one of your peers but God in all his perfections and glory. Sin makes you unpresentable. It makes you unqualified. Sin means that you cannot be in his presence. Sin separates. But in Christ, by the blood of Christ, we are washed. We are made presentable. We are qualified. We owed a death debt. He has paid our death debt. So look at verse 20. How? How did the blood do this. Look at that verse, 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Again, remember the temple. No one but the high priest, once a year, gets to go into the Holy of Holies, which is, it's restricted. It's set apart by the curtain, by the veil. The veil is like a big keep out sign. It's like a big access denied sign. But one time a year, he gets access to go into the presence of God. The high priest to do that, though, has to go through the curtain. Now we're being told in verse 20 that the way is completely opened. How? Because of the true and better curtain. Because of his 
flesh, meaning it's through the death of Jesus in our place that access is opened and presence is restored. And that's what makes the tearing of the temple curtain at Jesus's death so significant. That huge keep out sign is gone. It's now a huge enter sign, come in sign, welcome from access to denied to access granted all because of the death of Jesus. Your sin had barred you from God's presence. But Jesus, Hebrews 9.26, puts away our sin by, Hebrews 9.28, bearing our sins. And so, 10.14, making us perfect, complete, fit for fellowship, ready for relationship with God himself, not because of anything that we have done, but entirely because of what Christ has done for us. In Christ, you are here given the greatest of all blessings, access, invitation to enter in and to do so with confidence. You can be right with God. You can be with God. And that is the best thing. That is the thing that you were made for. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is what you are supposed to most desire and most delight in. That's what we are all of us ultimately longing for. Again, that's, what we're, that's why we're never satisfied with anything else. That's why we are never fulfilled, always looking, always longing, always after the next big thing, getting the next big thing, being let down by that next big thing, and then moving on to the next, next big thing. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in our hearts. And that can only be filled by an eternally big thing, a person, by, by God himself. He is what you were made for and your design matters. You can only work properly according to that design and you are designed for him. He is what you were meant to desire and delight in. Do you? Yeah, we have to spend time here and we have to start here because Listen, I've tried this. Uh, you can try it yourself if you'd like. You are entirely incapable of stirring up this kind of love that we're talking about here for other Christians yourself. So you, you cannot do it. You cannot just make yourself love other people. You cannot follow these 10 easy steps to effectively love other Christians. You cannot do the thing that you are commanded to do way back in John 13. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. You cannot and you will not do that until you are first captured and captivated by God's love for you. And that love is demonstrated so clearly in what he has done for you in Christ. You rejected him. You cut yourself off from him. You made yourself unfit for relationship with him because of your sin. And then you did and could do nothing about that. You didn't make the first move towards him. You didn't start to clean up your act. You didn't realize the error of your ways and call out to him. It's not while you were cleaning things up and getting things together, Christ died for you. No, it was while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And we, we know that. And yet we utterly fail to appreciate that. And I think it's because we utterly fail to appreciate the depth and the seriousness of our sin. 
And we've got to learn. Uh, the Puritans used to talk about meditating on our own sinfulness. Knowing it. Feeling it. Believing that it deserves and demands eternal death. And then seeing and appreciating what God has really done to solve that sin problem so that you could be with him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Can remember, this is all we're driving towards our command to love one another. And I'm trying to make the case that love for one another has to be fueled by this gracious and free love of God for us. You have to start here. If you find yourself, if you're like me and you find yourself not a particularly loving person, if you don't excel in this area like I do not, if you struggle to love other people, um, yes, we're going to take, we're going to talk about steps and practical things that you can do next week and, and take intentional action, pick up the phone and call a brother or sister. But you first need to get back to basics. You need to go back to the gospel. You need to sit in the good news of God's inexplicable love for you. You need to stew in it and meditate on it and ask him and beg him to help you to see it and appreciate it and delight in who he is and what he has done to save you. You have to start there. You have to start with the gospel. We can and we will love one another to the degree that we understand and appreciate and appropriate and apply God's love for us. It is only because of Christ's love for Christians that we can do the things that we are going to look at later. And it is only because of Christ's love for you. It's only because of the gospel that we can face viruses and and pandemics and uncertainty. And we can do that with confidence and with hope. Similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that we do not grieve as others who do, ha- who do not have hope. We also don't face outbreak as others who have no hope. Because while we may be barred from access from certain things that we love right now, we are not barred access from the thing that we love. We have been given full and free access to God through Christ. And that's what verse 21 is saying as well. It's since we have this great high priest over the house of God. We are the house of God. Remember, priests are mediators. Priests mediate presence. They mediate access. So Christ is here being described as the great high priest because that's what he does for us. He mediates the presence of God for us. And so since it's through his work, through his flesh, through his death, the way has been opened since the previously barred access is now made available. Point number two, and I'll be brief for these last two, two applications, and then we'll close. How should the access be applied? Because Christ has done this thing, because he provides free and full access to God, Christians draw near to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a full heart in full assurance of faith, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near. I again want to emphasize 
how this would have sounded to the ears of Jewish readers 2,000 years ago. Uh, Go back and read through Exodus chapter 19 um, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Right, God is going to come down on Mount Sinai. He is going to be there. He is going to be present. And he says, do not draw near. He tells Moses to set limits, to let no one go up on the mountain, to let not, not anyone even touch the mountain. And he says, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. He says, do not draw near. Now, draw near. It's wonderful. This great and holy God himself invites you into his presence. He lovingly warned Israel not to draw near because he knew that they would perish. He knew their sinfulness could not bear his holiness. But now, with the great high priest, with the sacrifice made, the penalty paid, the veil opened, we have confidence to enter in because... We are covered with Christ because we are in Christ. And we talked a few weeks ago in the Psalms about how frequent the metaphor of, of God as a shield is. And we saw that a shield is a substitute. A shield, it, it covers, it protects. A shield takes and absorbs the damage and the death that is meant for you. Well, God himself is our shield. Christ is our shield. God shields us from himself with himself. So in Christ, we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are safe, we are secure, and we are invited into God's presence because we are clothed with Christ's righteousness. We are invited to draw near to the God of perfect holiness and goodness. And you know, you're lucky that we're short on time. I'll, I'll save you on the grammar. Um, if you want to go check out the Greek and look, it all gets really interesting. These three, there's, remember these three, let us, let us, let us. Technically, these are not imperatives. Remember, imperative is the mood of command. Well, these are the subjunctive mood, but this is what is called the hortatory subjunctive. And I'm just trying to impress you at this point. Um, but, but the point is that these are still commands. Go, go look it up if you are interested. I didn't want to say it's an imperative and one of you go look it up and be like, oh, it's not an imperative. It still counts as an imperative. We are being told to do something. He is saying, you all do this thing. You all draw near. In light of all of that that we just looked at, you now do this. Draw near. And then notice that there are four statements that follow that command. The first two, I think, are the manner of our drawing near. The second two are the basis, uh, the, the foundation of our ability to do so. In other words, the first two, I think, are subjective, what we are to do, based upon the second two, which are objective, what God has done. Because of all that we've looked at, because of the work of Christ, your hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and your bodies are washed with pure water. By the way, what a gift. Um, I I mean, do you appreciate the gift of a clean conscience? Uh, There is nothing more valuable than that. Uh, It is such a relief. It is such a burden lifted, a clean conscience, in spite of all those horrible things that I have done and that you have done in the past that you don't want anybody to know about, and all of that stuff that still weighs on you sometimes. In Christ, clean conscience, because all of that taken from you and put upon him. That is, that is such a gift. He has already dealt with my evil. So what he's saying here in the second part is we're sanctified body and soul. Praise God. Which means, back to the first two phrases, here's how 
we are to draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters, God is after your heart, that that heart that is restless until it finds its rest in him. We draw near with a heart that is true, sincere, that that is fixed upon him, that is resting and trusting in him. This is what the Christian life is all about, drawing near to God. And remember, this is what covenant is all about, God drawing near to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is a repeated phrase in the book of Hebrews. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Well, how? What exactly does that mean? Well, let's look at a couple of the examples real quick to get a taste of this. Uh, Flip back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I think there's seven of these. We're just going to look at a few real quick. I'm not doing all seven. Don't worry. Look at Hebrews 4, 16. There he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's the confidence again, uh, drawing near. Why? Why is he drawing near in this case? That in a time of need, kind of sounds like right now, that in a time of need, we may receive mercy and find grace grace. Ultimately, what that verse is talking about in context, we don't have time. I think that one's talking about prayer. One of the main ways that we draw near to God is prayer. As we call out to him in our time of need, God is the one who ministers mercy and grace. Again, we're not talking about physical presence anymore. We're talking about spiritual presence. God says, I am with you. We have access and we enter into that presence through prayer. And some of this needs to start with a bit of a uh, mindset shift. We need to start thinking of prayer less in terms of petition and more in terms of praise and presence. Of course it is petition. I I know that. Ask away. But we're great at that part. How are we at praising God and simply being with God in and through prayer? One of the main ways we draw near is through prayer. Maybe more next week. Go to Hebrews 7. Look at verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25. There in Hebrews 7, 25, it says, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Right. So we've seen this, but this is making it explicit. Here we see that the only way to draw near to God is through Christ. And what a wonderful verse that is. What a wonderful promise. Good news. He, Christ, always lives. This is what he does. This is what he cannot fail to do to make intercession for us. He is working for us on our behalf. It is through Christ that God's presence is mediated to us. He is God with us. Flip to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Want to draw near? Well, how do you do it? It's faith. Faith is the answer. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, faith is... Uh, it's, 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 it's knowing him. It's believing in him. And that, that verse, it's confusing a little bit because the verb form, uh, you see 
faith in the first part, and then you see believe in the second part. That's the same word. That's the noun and the verb of the same word, pistis. You must have faith. You must believe um, that he exists. Without belief, it it is impossible to please God. Same word. Faith is how we draw near to God. Not feeling, but faith. Confident trust. Knowing. So hard to describe. A deep down confident conviction that God is real, that he is true, that he is good, that he is beautiful, that he is gracious, and that he is mine. Through Christ. And so I draw near to him by faith, by believing and trusting in him. But remember, a a while back, we worked through a little bit of Luther's definition of faith. Listen to this again. I love this definition. Faith is a living, bold trust. So there's the trust. It's trust in God's grace. So certain there's confidence of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Faith is trust. Such Confidence and knowledge of God's grace. Okay, this is what it does. It makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. That's what faith does. It's a faith that results in joy and a boldness in your relationship with the Lord, which then overflows in a boldness and a love and a joy in your relationship with others. Faith is a certain trust in God's gracious promise that makes you happy and thankful and joyful, and bold. That's, that's the confidence in your relationship with God and others. That's what it means to draw near. It's faith, but not faith is just bare intellectual, I, I believe these are some things about Jesus. But no, but whole, total, robust trust in the goodness of God that leads to great delight and joy in God. It, it is to find, to draw near to God is to find your identity and your greatest pleasure in the access that you have to Him in the presence of God. And so that He now becomes your object of attention, your object of affection, your aim and your goal, what you live and long for. And so you seek and you pursue. You give time and attention. You focus on. You meditate on. You spend time with. You pursue what you most love. And guys, you become most like what you most love. Honestly, every single one of us needs to honestly answer that question for ourselves. What is that for you? What are you most excited about? What most captures your affection? How about this? Oh, Are you most excited about hearing from God's word right now or most excited about the show that you get to watch tonight? I confess, I'm starting the Jordan documentary tonight, and I'm really excited. Um, I love Michael Jordan. Go Tar Heels. Uh, So I've heard it's great, and I'm going to watch it tonight. I'm excited. Um, But I need to check that. What are you most excited about? What do I most Love. Am I most thankful that I get to be uh, with you in a way, that I get to proclaim God's word to you, or do I just want to get home and relax and read a book and watch some shows? What are you most passionate about? What do you most love? Are you most excited about getting out of quarantine and back to your normal life, or are you most excited about getting out of quarantine and getting back among the people of God to worship God? Because that's one of the main ways that we draw near. I've mentioned prayer. We'll do that again next week. Listen, worship is how we draw near. And I'm going to argue next week that in light of the third command that's coming up, what is ultimately really being commanded here is corporate worship and the drawing near to God that we, plural, do as we gather 
together. We're going to really unpack that um, next week, and hopefully that'll be a timely um, opportunity to do that. But Christian, do you delight in the fact here that God himself is giving you an invitation and is offering you and inviting you to draw near to him? Are you taking advantage of that? Are, Are you doing that? Are you taking advantage of the full access that has been provided in Christ? And do you know how? to do that. We need to stop. Last thing, I'll read point number three um, and summarize. Um, The third one simply is that Christians hold fast to God. Verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Kind of looking at that now, I think that point could be worded better. We are holding fast to God, but we are being told how, and we are to do it by holding fast to our confession. In other words, the content of God's promises, the good news. What he's really saying here is it's hold fast to the truth. And this is sort of the main point of the whole letter. Don't deviate. Don't waver from the truth. Hey, things are hard. Uh, You are surrounded by difficulty. You are surrounded by falsehood. You will be tempted to abandon the truth. You will be tempted to look for something else. Don't do that. If all that we have just discussed is true, then Christ is everything and the only thing. He is the only one who has dealt with our sin problem by taking on that sin. And the only one who has dealt with our death problem by taking on our death. And the only one who gives us access to God. There is no other way. So he's saying, cling to him. And cling to him by, 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 by clinging to this. By this word that reveals him and that mediates him to us. God mediates his presence to us through Christ. Christ mediates his presence to us by the Spirit through this word. Christians cling to the word then. And then they rest and they rejoice in it. And then they look to it and they look to nothing else. Because it is here that we find Christ. The Christ that we have been looking at for these last 50 minutes. The Christ who gives us hope. Hope, brothers and sisters, in him. Hold fast to him, knowing as we're about to sing as we close that he will hold you fast. As verse 23 says, you can do this because he who promised is faithful. He cannot not do what he has said. He cannot fail to fulfill his promise. And his promise is access It's presence, it's life, it's fellowship, it's relationship through Christ. So draw near to him. Hold fast to him. Trust, know, love, delight in him, and live. That's the foundation. Our love for one another next week is rooted first in this, in his love for us. And brothers and sisters, what a love this is. A death-defeating, life-giving, relationship-creating love. That's what we are to love like. So start with the gospel. Delight in his love for you. And then seek to love your brothers and sisters out of that love. Let's stop there and let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. Father, I do love and delight in the proclaiming of your word. Father, but I do not take uh, that responsibility lightly. So, Father, I pray that you would do your work through your word. Father, I pray that I would not be the focus. I pray that I would not do anything to get in the way of your word, but that I would be a means through which your people are directed to you. 
Father, show us your goodness and your grace and your love. Father, fill our hearts with an affection for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for how fearful we can be and how doubting and frustrated we can sometimes get. Um, Father, uh, fill us with joy in Jesus. Father, help us to see the wonderful gift of access to you that we have been given in Jesus Christ and make that the defining reality of our lives. Father, teach us what it means to draw near to you in faith, Father, through prayer, through the word, to do that together corporately. Father, and I pray that we would learn um, that the great gift that we have is you, yourself, and knowing you and being known by you in relationship and fellowship with you. Father, help us to do this now, we pray. Encourage our hearts with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.